Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it is the permanent and official record of our very existence, and it's the way we learn about our family's history. But did you know that the birth certificate itself has a fascinating history of its own? Also this morning, child behavioral experts warn, and it really makes sense if you think about it, that even a normal back-to-school season will still feel like a disruption for students after a year of nothing being normal. That is especially true for those with added challenges such as ADHD. We have advice for parents to help their kids cope. And Hancock County OSU Extension educator Tori Kirian gives an update on 4-H programs and activities. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, July 13th, 2021. Today, if you need a reason to celebrate, is Barbershop Music Appreciation Day. <laughs> so get together with some friends, get a chorus together, and uh, belt out a rendition of Down by the Old Mill Stream. Uh, Barbershop Music Appreciation Day. It is Beans and Franks Day. Beans and Franks. D- what do you call that dish? Beans and Franks. You say Beans and Franks? Because in my house, we call it Beanie Weenie. <laughs> I don't know uh, if that is significant or or anything, but we had Beanie Weenie just the other day, as a matter of fact. So, Beans and Franks Day today, and it is also Embrace Your Geekness Day, like admitting that you have been Beanie Weenie <laughs> for dinner. Um, I think that was Saturday. We just, you know, something easy, throw it together and have a little Beanie Weenie. Uh <laughs> Today is Gruntled Workers Day. So often we read or hear about disgruntled workers who don't like their jobs. Today is for those who are satisfied or content with their jobs to show how gruntled they are. You're not disgruntled. You must be gruntled. So if you are happy with your job, today is for you. Gruntled Day. And it is National French Fry Day. And apparently, I did not know this, but apparently there is... Uh, a, a bit of a controversy over the history of the French fry, the deep fried potatoes. Uh, the French claim that they invented them, what, back in like the 16th century or something. But apparently there are those in Belgium who believe and have evidence, I'm told, that they were actually invented in that country as much as uh, a century earlier. So, but calling them Belgian fries doesn't have the same kind of ring to it as French fries. I mean, hey, Belgium, you've got your waffles. What else do you need? Let's let the French have the fries. What else is going on? Among the uh, first things you need to know this morning, the most buzzworthy uh, stories of the day, if you're just uh, waking up and... uh, Uh, Having your first cup of coffee this morning, you don't need to feel guilty about it. Northwestern University researchers found that the consumption of at least one cup of regular coffee per day was associated with a lower risk of COVID-19. How about that? Even after adjusting for other factors like uh, gender, race, age, and physical activity, BMI level, history of certain medical conditions, and so on and so forth. Even after taking all of that into account, researchers found that the habitual consumption of one of one or more cups of coffee per day was associated with about a 10% decrease 
in the risk of COVID-19 infection compared to less than one cup per day. Coffee known to contain antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, and researchers say coffee consumption favorably correlates with inflammatory biomarkers. Take all these things together, and an immunoprotective effect of coffee against COVID-19 is plausible, and they say merits further investigation. So there you go. About that. Now, you don't want to overdo it. Uh, this is information from the managing director of Sleep for Health, Dr. Carmel Harrington, says that drinking caffeine may help you get going in the morning, but you should not rely it or rely on it to help it get through get you through your afternoon slump. That's the other thing. You drink caffeine to give us that jolt in the morning, wake us up. And then some of us in the afternoon, we get that uh, afternoon slump. Uh, you go for another cup of coffee. Well, don't. It says consuming coffee later in the day can be detrimental to your sleep at night. Uh, Dr. Harrington says you should stop drinking coffee afternoon. So that's the cutoff, 12 o'clock. And that is especially important if you are in the over 35 age group, because as we age, our metabolic rate slows so that the coffee that didn't affect our sleep when we were younger certainly could be doing so now. So, there you go. I'm sorry, but uh, coffee in the morning, that's a good thing. Coffee in the afternoon, not so much. Uh, as you are waking up and uh, getting ready to uh, head, uh, head into work, if you're uh, heading into the office now, uh, fewer people are staying home uh, than did... A year ago, obviously, researchers from James Cook University in Australia uh, have conducted research to answer the burning question, did your pets enjoy having you home more during the lockdown? Uh, they surveyed cat and dog owners about how their animals reacted to having humans at home more during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the results showed that nearly all dog owners believe that their pets did enjoy having them home more often, while cat owners were split on whether their felines liked it or hated, hated it. <laughs> Which is really not surprising to me when I think of cats uh, are more indifferent. <laughs> and this uh, results of this study seem to indicate that feline indifference. Some pet owners noted differences in how their pets behaved. Researchers say when people's dogs acted differently, it was clear and simple. They tended to be happier and more relaxed with people home and got clingy when we started venturing outside the home more often once again. But with cats, not so simple. Lead researcher Jessica Olivia says, quote, There was much variability in how cats responded. Probably depends very much on the type of cat, unquote. Another Interesting finding in the study, being a dog owner was found to be protective against loneliness. And again, cats, not so much. <laughs> because, and I think that's uh, not really surprising. Your cats, they really don't care. <laughs> they, they really, they couldn't care less. <clears throat> anyway, but you know, it is that restrained indifference that we love about our felines, isn't it? I mean, honestly. You know, uh, a couple of uh, 
couple of interesting stories, business related stories uh, with the uh, with the pandemic. CNN business uh, says a uh, as pushback on the pandemic continues, more businesses reopen. One industry is seeing a noticeable boom in the reopening. No, not the travel industry. That certainly has seen a boom. But this is one that might have gone overlooked. The wedding uh, industry is really booming now. CNN Business says that as people start to resume some sense of normalcy, getting hitched has once more become a priority. Uh, Meaning all things... Uh, associated with weddings are doing very well, thank you, or at least most wedding-related industries are. Jewelry is now in very high demand. Um, An executive for the Shane Company, private jeweler, uh, tells CNN, we have seen a resurgence in both engagement ring and wedding band sales. Uh, After people started getting the COVID vaccine earlier this year, sales of these luxury items spiked in April and May. Uh, The CEO of ClearCut, an engagement ring company based in New York, said it saw its sales jump four times, uh, four times over, 400% this May compared with May of last year. Yeah, probably not a surprise when you really think about it, but not the first industry uh, that immediately comes to mind. And guess who else has seen a boom during the pandemic? This is kind of interesting. Dentists in America Uh, have uh, been doing very well in the wake of the pandemic. Thank you very much. Dentists are noticing that teeth grinding and jaw clenching seem to be on the rise. It is a condition known as bruxism, if you want to be technical. Uh, It is attributed to uncertainty caused by the pandemic, as well as the isolation and disruptions in people's routine. Teeth clenching now affecting people who have never had a history or problem with it before. Uh, according to New York City-based dentist Dr. Saul Pressner, he says uh, he is seeing people who were predisposed to teeth gl- uh, grinding and teeth clenching, jaw clenching, who had already had treatment and some who had no evidence to show that they were ever uh, clenching or grinding before. It is currently unknown exactly what causes teeth grinding, but health officials believe this behavior is related to sleep patterns and processes within the central nervous system caused by anxiety and highly stressful life circumstances, both of which, obviously, we had to deal with a great deal during the uh, pandemic. Also up during the pandemic, alcohol use, uh, which is another factor for bruxism. And dentists note that they are seeing patients who are grinding their teeth in the daytime while they are awake which is unusual. They say if left untreated, bruxism can cause uh, cavities, gum disease, um, inability to chew properly. Ultimately, dentists and mental health professionals agree that tackling this issue will involve addressing stress and anxiety along with preventive dental care to ensure that complications don't arise in the future. So kind of interesting stuff there. Uh, Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, mostly cloudy today with a chance of showers and storms, a high of 81. Showers possible tonight, a low of 68. The United Way of Hancock County will be holding a Days of Caring service event in the fall, the first time they will have had two events in one year. 
Holding a second fall day of caring enables us to provide additional support to our local nonprofits when they need it most. An added benefit is that volunteers who may have been interested in helping in the spring but couldn't now have that option to give. That's CEO Angela Dubosky. During the Days of Caring event in May, more than 550 volunteers from area corporations completed 79 projects for 15 agencies. Get more on Days of Caring and how to volunteer on our website. The Ohio Gun Violence Caucus met to discuss what needs to be done to reduce gun violence in the Buckeye State. Hamilton County Sheriff Charmaine McGuffey was the keynote speaker. She touched on a number of things, including current gun laws that she believes contribute to the state's rate of gun violence. Because we're not out there working on really sensible gun legislation, we're empowering people to settle their disputes with a weapon. And the sheriff went on to say that weapons on the street create anxiety for law enforcement officers who are trying to work with their community. That's ONN's Tracy Townsend reporting. Get more on our website. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose is referring 117 cases of suspected voter fraud to the Ohio Attorney General's office. They're small numbers, but there's no such thing as an acceptable level of election fraud. We're just not going to tolerate it. And, and there's also that deterrent factor. People need to know that if you are attempting to cast a ballot and you're not a citizen, that we're going to catch you. He says Ohio will continue to be a leader in safe and secure voting on his watch. Get more on our website. Ohio Northern is holding a drawing to give away prizes to vaccinated students. Every student who is fully vaccinated and submits proof to the ONU Student Health Center by August 2nd will be entered into a drawing for the prizes. Prizes include $5,000 in grants toward cost of attending Ohio Northern. The registration deadline is August 2nd, and the winners will be drawn and announced on August 6th. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. It is our cover story this morning, and this is really fascinating. You think about the birth certificate, something we pretty much take for granted. It is the permanent and official record of our very existence. It is also the way that we learn about our family's history. But did you know that the uh, simple birth certificate uh, has a fascinating history all of its own. Joining us this morning is AJ Dufresne, is the general manager of UFTV, the University of Findlay, uh, who has a, a new documentary that he has put together in the history of the birth certificate. And AJ, thanks for uh, being with us this morning. We appreciate it. So this is this is something that you have been working on for uh, quite a while, right? That's correct. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, it's been like, uh, to call it 12 years wow. uh, in the making. Um, so, yeah, you know, life got in the way. <laughs> well, what, so what got you interested in this and, you know, what kind of triggered uh, your, your interest in telling the story of the birth certificate? Because again, like I think for most of us, this is just something that we kind of take for granted. Yeah, we were doing a, the original intent of the documentary was to do uh, a history about fracture, which is a, a broken uh, German medieval manuscript or lettering typeface. And there's a lot of ornate art that came over with uh, the Mennonites and the Lutherans and the Schwenkfelders that, that landed in southeast Pennsylvania in the, you know, the 17th century. And while we were interviewing uh, Lisa Minardi at the Historic Trap um, Museum in Southeast Pennsylvania, I think it's in Lancaster, but uh, 
she mentioned a story about that, you know, a lot of the Civil War, or I'm sorry, the American Revolutionary War widows were submitting these fracture documents as proof of their citizenship, as well as that they were married to a soldier who had perished in the war mm-hmm. to get their their pension. And like, hmm, that's an interesting story. Tell me more. And it kind of came to fruition through that story. And, and we started doing more research into, you know, how the birth certificate became um, in its modern day um yeah, uh, kind of as the iteration that we have now is, of course, it's issued by uh, the uh, issued by the state, uh, the uh, health department. Correct. They issue the uh, official record of life. Like we said, it is the permanent and official record of our very existence. We use it to verify our identity, to get on a plane, to uh, get our social security benefits, uh, to you know buy a car. I mean, you know, everything, get a driver's license, everything revolves around the yep. birth certificate. But that was not always the case. And again, the beginning of the documentary, uh, you trace that back to the uh, earliest, uh, most simple forms of a record of live births. Yeah, basically church registers were the way that hmm. um, you could trace property you know, transactions, and that was really the the purpose from one mail to another mail. You know, that's the way it was in the 15th century, hmm. um, and that's really what it was for. The birth, you know, certificates. They weren't they were the registers were there just to pr- prove who you were. You know, as uh, I think it was Sandy Hewitt, the Genealogical Society of Philadelphia said that you know there was a lot more trust back then. You know, you were transferring property from one heir to another heir, or from one sale to another owner, and um, so yeah. It's kind of interesting that, um, you know, then Henry VIII essentially uh, said, you know, I'm going to decree that this has to be done um, across England and all the churches will be, you know, will register all births, deaths, and and marriages. Mm. So when did this uh, transition then to a matter for the state itself to manage and uh, sort of certify uh, the official record? Uh, How did that transition happen? Well, yeah, there was a huge jump from like Massachusetts started 1639. Of course, we were still a colony then, Virginia, um, 1632. But then there's a huge jump, and it wasn't really until the creation of the official birth certificate in 1930. You know, hmm. I mean, you're talking about um, somewhere be- and right before that, in 1902, the Census Bureau established a standard birth registration system, but it wasn't a certificate. You know, in order to prove who you were, you were still using uh, the census records, uh, family Bibles, you know, just to prove who you were. And then hmm. with the advent of Social Security in 1930, they had to come up with a system to prove who you were. Yeah. I found that to be really interesting. The various ways, absent a standardized birth certificate, uh, the the various ways that people use to verify their identity over the years. Yeah, I mean, how difficult would that have been? You know, I mean, the the National Archives and the um, Social Security Administration went through a long process of. Um, entering the data, they went back, I think, to 1890. So this is 1930. They went back to uh, 1890 and started entering all this information into their systems with punch cards. Um, and they were trying to, you know, just get these uh, the parents and the, the kids into the system so, you know, they can collect Social Security so they'd already be in the system. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, the proving who you were was, was not an easy uh, task. Yeah. And, you know, it, 
it, it, it's something that we take for granted now, but yes. you know, prior yeah. to you know this standardization, uh, how how do you prove who you are and who you say you are? Uh, and again, there were always very compelling reasons why you would need to do so. So, talk a little bit about putting this documentary together again. Uh, as you mentioned, this has been many many years in the making, and uh, you spoke with a lot of folks and, and did a lot of research. Uh, into this yeah uh like i said it was we shot this footage about 12 years ago we did the interviews uh mm. with jefferson moat uh, the u.s archives of philadelphia sandy hewitt and then um of course uh lisa minority who is our subject matter expert she's just a phenomenal um person but and then of course tom schindeldecker did the voiceover right uh, former wfin right so mm -hmm. uh but uh you know, we went through this this process where I went and uh, Aaron Osborne, who helped me edit, and and he and Ben Walton helped me shoot it. Um, I asked Aaron when I moved back to Finley, I said, uh, "Hey, you still have the footage of this, you know, the birth certificate stuff that we shot?" And he's like, "Well, I got to go find it. You know, it's somewhere on the hard drive." <laughs> so we found it, you know, in this closet somewhere. Then he, you know, had to pull it up. And so, long story short. Um, what you normally do when you do a documentary, when you produce a documentary, is you write the script and then you shoot. And it was completely backwards. We had all the footage <laughs> and I had to go and write the script. And um, so that was that was uh, a little more difficult, you know, on myself. But uh, I think what came out of it was a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Um, but it, it took a while. Yeah. Um, we were having terrible issues with computers. And, uh, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine after all of those years, I mean, technology advances so much that uh, I, I'm guessing you might even run into compatibility issues and, you know, all of these things having to uh, reconstruct all of this and, and put it all back together again uh, after so many years. It really is a, a fascinating documentary. It's only, uh, what, a, about a half hour or so uh, long, but it tells a really fascinating story. Where do folks uh, find the documentary if they want to give this a look? You can go to uh, preservingamerica.com, which will redirect you to lakeerie.tv, or you can go to the YouTube and or and search in um, preserving America um, the birth certificates. There's there's other there's a series um, called Preserving America, and um, in that series there's also um, content about the generic sh um, shipwreck survivors. There's uh, uh, several different stories, the Underground Railroad. So it's a, it's a mm. series that I've kept alive um, for a while now. So it, it is quite a few stories. Yeah, a lot of really interesting stories, but this one uh, especially uh, kind of resonated with this because, like I said, we take it for granted, uh, and and you know just the thought of how would you prove that you are who you say you are or who you think you are uh absent this standardized record and uh like we said it's also how we you know kind of trace our family's histories back through the generations as well so where would we be in so many respects without uh the simple birth certificate which turns out has a fascinating history of its own we've got a link up on our webpage goodmornings.net if you want to check it out again aj Dufresne from uh University of uh, Finley, UFTV. AJ, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it seems uh, hard to believe that we're already talking about back to school already, but here we are. Hopefully, when the kids head back to school this year, it will finally be 
a normal academic year after really two disrupted years, especially last year where it was remote learning and then hybrid learning and then in-person learning and then back to hybrid learning for a while and so on and so on and so on. The prospect of having one routine and sticking with it is good for every child, but particularly those uh, for those with ADHD. Uh, Dr. Teresa Cerulli is a neuropsychiatrist and clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School who specializes in ADHD. And Dr. Cerulli, uh, what are some of the things that uh, parents may want to keep in mind now that it looks like their kids will, in fact, be back in the classroom full time this fall? Yes, Chris, this certainly has been a year like no other, and, and I anticipate it will be a back-to-school year like no other, as uh, we're all excited about our, our children returning to in-person learning in the classroom. Uh, it, but w- along with the excitement comes some anxiety as well, right, especially for our kiddos trying to make this yet another transition through this pandemic. So I, and, and add, let's talk the ADHD aspect of this. For ADHD kids, there's added layers of complexity. They do need a lot of external structure. So through all these transitions, there have been many, many hurdles for them. Uh, I do think of the summer as an opportunity, though, for us to talk about setting them up for success for the fall. So, and, and this is true, again, of all students, uh, but for particularly for those families with ADHD thrown into the mix, how can the summertime then set the stage for the new school year? So as not only a professional in the field of ADHD, but as a, as a parent of an ADHD child, I can very much relate to what it's like as a family with this very question. I look at the summer as a real opportunity to reassess what we're doing for treatment options, reassess to reinforce what's working well, and then to shore up some of the weaknesses. In other words, optimize perhaps what we could be doing better. And that's whether we're talking about medications for ADHD or non-medications. Usually both are needed for our best outcomes for our kiddos. Uh, you hear a lot about, geez, should we be taking a medication vacation in the summer from, from ADHD medications? Mm-hmm. That historically comes that historically comes from some of the side effects people worry about with stimulants and whether or not they need a, a quote, break from them. So I really say rather than a break, let's look at what are our options? How can we do better? What, what are some of the alternatives that, that parents have? Uh, again, like you said, it's uh, often a multi-pronged approach. And uh, sometimes, like you said, you evaluate what is and isn't working. Uh, When you get to that part of what's not working, what are the alternatives then? uh, Absolutely. There's the the pronged approach I really think about uh, medication and non-medication. So let me start with the medication aspects of that. The medications we have are not only stimulants, but there's non-stimulants available. You just don't hear as much about them. Mm-hmm. So I want, and I'm here on, in partnership with Supernus Pharmaceuticals to talk about Kelbri, which is the new non-stimulant medication now FDA approved and available. Uh, it, as a non-stimulant means not controlled, not an abusable substance. It's the first new chemical entity we've had in, in 10 years, believe it or not, in ADHD. And it's not that uh, non-stimulants don't have side effects. They're just different than the side effects you may see with stimulant, with stimulant medication. But you might want to watch for, for example, with the non-stimulant fatigue or, or sedation can be a side effect. Obviously, talk to your doctor. There's never a one-size-fits-all treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, ADHD presents very, very differently from person to person. And so, so, too, the treatment options need to be really tailored to that individual. 
Then there's also, of course, non-medication treatment approaches that also need to be tailored to the individual. And summer is a great opportunity to do that. So the bottom line message is that, like you said, that there are alternatives uh, if something is not working. Uh, I know a lot of parents can get frustrated with that, but there are uh, other alternatives, both on the medication and non-medication side. And the the other point to make, and the, the reason why we talk about this right now in what seems like the middle of summer, my goodness, why are we talking about back to school already, is because you have then time to prepare and and uh, get ready for this routine and optimize uh, treatments and and so on what are some of the other steps that parents can help uh, can take to help an ADHD child uh, over these remaining weeks of summer to gradually gear up for the next new year yeah absolutely important to start now uh, planning ahead i think of the four support legs of the treatment table for ADHD. So picture a table. One of those 30 legs is the is medication, but we've got three other legs equally, if not more important. One, ADHD coaching, whether that's parent coaching, for adults, it's individual coaching. Coaching meaning, I think about like a sports coach. They're not, it's not therapy. It's uh, how do you pack your backpack in such a way that you've got your folders organized or color coded? Mm. It's the uh, bring your schedule. Let's look at Monday through Friday, how you've set up your your plan for the week and how you organize your activities and your your homework time and your school time. It's the it's the nuts and bolts of how one functions. Then there's there is therapy and also important that's leg number three of the table, whether it's individual or family therapy or both. Uh, I, I mentioned having a, a daughter with ADHD. We found family therapy extremely useful for helping manage what is a systems issue, how one organizes their entire family life mm-hmm. can be impacted when you have one child, if not more, with ADHD. And then finally, the last leg of the table, the school plays a role, so academic accommodations. That summertime is a good opportunity to think through what your child may need in the classroom to best learn, such as untimed tests, perhaps, or, t- or half t- uh, time and a half phone tests. Or where they're seated in the classroom can make a difference. If you're in the front, it's a lot easier for the teacher to make eye contact, to walk by and place their, your, their hand on your child's desk. And it really pulls the attention into the classroom to participate more and not just drift off in the back daydreaming out the window, right? So, so these non-medication approaches have these conversations with your child during the summer. Think ahead what you want to talk to your teacher about and how your child best learns. And uh, just as a side note, uh, you know, teachers are going to be very receptive uh, to all of that because they want uh, students to succeed as well. So uh, don't be afraid to uh, br- uh, to uh, bring up these uh, issues and these questions uh, with the uh, child's teacher. And again, uh, in these remaining weeks of the summertime, get this game plan together and start putting it uh, into action now. Uh, as we mentioned, you know, obviously your doctor is going to be the best uh, source of information for your specific situation, but where do folks go for kind of general information on all of this? The wonderful organization called CHAD, that's Children and Adults with ADHD, and their website is chad.org. Great resource. If you're interested in more information on the new medication I mentioned, the non-stimulant Kelbre, Q-E-L-B-R-E-E.com. We'll link up to that on our webpage. Again, uh, Dr. Teresa Cerulli, uh, the Harvard Medical School, specializes in ADHD, uh, already talking, thinking back to school in what hopefully will be a much more normal year 
coming up. Dr. Cerulli, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for caring about this important topic. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update in the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Some people just don't know when to quit. Police in Albuquerque, New Mexico say Loyola Volpert was wearing a hospital gown on Saturday in a neighborhood near San Pedro when she reportedly removed the gown tried breaking into several locked vehicles, and then started destroying items in people's front yards. (laughs) Uh, Not surprisingly, this generated a, uh, a large number of calls to police, and the criminal complaints say that when the cops got to the scene, she tried to run and started throwing items at officers. (laughs) Police caught up with her and arrested her, Uh, which is when she allegedly kicked an officer. (laughs) Again, just don't know when to quit. Uh, Ms. Volpert was booked and charged with battery on a uh, police officer and assorted other charges as well. Why she would do that, uh, no one really knows. (laughs) But anyway, speaking of not knowing when to quit, a Utah man is in custody after making violent threats toward a judge. Uh, It involved uh, his son's sentence. Officials say last week, Chester Webster, Chester Webster sent a letter to the judge of record with the 8th District Court threatening hangings if his son was not released. (laughs) The 70-year-old's letter also mentioned that he knows how to make death slow and painful and how to kill a man with his bare hands. Not surprisingly, the judge didn't take too kindly to this man's letter. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, the judge was not amused. Police say before they took Mr. Webster into custody last Friday, he was reportedly intoxicated, exposed himself in public, and then relieved himself uh, in full view of the officers. So, there is that. He is also facing multiple charges, including threatening a judge and public lewdness. (laughs) Now, those are two charges that generally don't go together. I mean, you have to be really, really good (laughs) to get a charge of both threatening a judge and public lewdness. I mean, my guess is that there's not a uh, pair of charges that go together every day. Uh, Let's see... Elsewhere from the broken news, the international file, a woman in China has been arrested uh, after cops uncovered an alleged plot to get revenge on her ex-boyfriend. The woman and her new boyfriend, uh, well, here's the story. The woman had her new boyfriend rent her former boyfriend's Audi. Now, apparently, former boyfriend didn't realize who this person was. His girlfriend's new flame. So he borrowed the ex-boyfriend's car. And then she reportedly ran the car through 49 red lights, (laughs) accruing a massive amount of tickets. Because in China, they have those automatic uh, cameras where it snaps a picture of your license plate and then sends you the ticket. So... She got the brilliant idea of racking up all of these traffic charges. (laughs) Happened over the course of two days. Police finally linked the incidents 
back to her and her current boyfriend. Both of them are being detained on suspicion of provoking trouble. That's the that's the charge. Suspicion of provoking trouble. <laughs> we need that kind of charge in this country. I don't know that that is a specific crime in this country, but it should be. Suspicion of provoking trouble. <laughs> Speaking of provoking trouble, Springfield, Massachusetts police arrested a man on Saturday for allegedly shooting paintballs at city surveillance cameras, <laughs> city security cameras. Uh, spokesperson for the uh, Springfield, Massachusetts Police Department, Ryan Walsh, tells local news reporters that a man identified as 23-year-old Manuel Torres had reportedly shot a city camera with a paintball gun. Following, following an alert to police, officers stopped Mr. Torres and placed him under arrest after finding a paintball gun in his car. <laughs> He was charged with two counts of defacement of property, two counts of violating a city ordinance for firing his paintball gun within city limits. So there was that. And I'm I'm thinking suspicion of provoking trouble. (laughs) I mean, I understand, uh, you know, the pushback against Big Brother, the city, monitoring your every move with these security cameras, but that's probably not the best way of dealing with it, you know? And finally... In the broken news this morning, uh, this is our viral video of the day. Comes from TikTok user Caitlin8560 is what she goes her handle on TikTok. Uh, And it's a story, uh, the moral of the story, some thieves apparently don't consider all of the evidence they might leave behind. Uh, Apparently, uh, Caitlin ordered... Uh, placed an, uh, a delivery order at uh, her local Taco Bell. All right, she placed the delivery order. When the DoorDash driver arrived, one of her tacos from her order was missing. One of the Doritos Locos tacos was missing. Uh, she says she got a photo of the order from her DoorDash delivery driver confirming the delivery of the food, and the picture shows two of the driver's fingers with what appeared to be Doritos smudges on them. (laughs) So she thinks, even though the driver denied having anything to do with it, she thinks she knows what really happened. (laughs) Always consider all the evidence you're maybe leaving behind. (laughs) There you go. That is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services, We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. You don't think twice about wearing your seatbelt. Going boating? Real boaters wear a life jacket. It's easy to do. Accidents can happen quickly, and if you're not wearing your life jacket, you won't have time to put it on if it's stowed. So pick a comfortable life jacket and wear it. Remember, life jackets are for everyone, regardless of your age or swimming ability. Have fun, make memories, and boat responsibly. This message brought to you by the National Safe Boating Council and U.S. Coast Guard. This message provided by WFIN. And now time for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. You know, some people are more uh, open than others. Um, Some people tend to be very private. Uh, Others are kind of an open book. However, no matter how which end of the spectrum you fall on, we all have our secrets. And a new survey of 2,000 adults 
finds that the average person has two secrets that they keep from everyone. This was a survey conducted by one poll found that 20% of those in the survey are most likely to keep a secret from their mom. That is who we are most likely to try or try to. My experience is that mom somehow has a way of knowing, (laughs) but we are most likely to try and keep a secret from our moms. 20%, 16% will keep secrets from their best friends and 16% will even keep secrets from their spouse or significant other. And what are the top secrets that people say that they keep from friends and family? Uh, Mental health issues, uh, number one, followed by embarrassing incidents that have happened to them uh, in the past and Internet history, I guess, uh, is number three. Some of their Internet history. So there's the top three in fourth place. uh, The most common secret that we keep. From friends, family, even our spouse or significant other. Uh, In fourth place, our eating or snacking habits, followed by hygiene habits in fifth. (laughs) If you have a hygiene habit secret, then I I don't want to (laughs) know. You know what I mean? Go ahead and keep that secret. I don't want to know if you have a hygiene (laughs) habit secret. Rounding out the top 10 of most common secrets people are keeping from others, uh, the past number of romantic partners, all right, Uh, bank and credit card statements, okay, Uh, financial issues, I certainly can understand that. I'm actually surprised that's not higher up on the list. Faking an illness in the past to avoid a commitment. (laughs) Now, I know some people do that. I was shocked to learn that was actually in the top 10, that enough people have done that in the past that it made the top 10, faking an illness to avoid a commitment at some point in the past. (laughs) I can see why you would want to keep that a secret. Um, Affairs and infidelities and one-night stands round out the top 10. And that kind of goes back to the number of partners uh, that you've had, but specifically affairs and infidelities and one night stands, numbers nine and ten. So what is interesting about that uh, is that there are some issues there, some secrets that are not surprising on that list. I think if you were to ask somebody, hey, what are the deep, dark secrets that people keep from others? Some of those would be ones that you could guess. But some of the ones that you would most immediately think of are not necessarily the highest on the list. So I suppose there's some good news in that respect that the that affairs, infidelities, one-night stands are fairly down lower on the list as compared to, say, <laughs> hygiene habits. Time to find out what's happening with the Hancock County 4-H program. OSU Extension Educator Tori Kirian is with us on the line this morning. Tori, thanks for uh, taking the time. Obviously, summer uh, is a busy time for the uh, folks at, at 4-H. You just uh, recently what you uh, finished up uh, camp with the uh, kids? Good morning. Yes, at the end of June, we finished our um, 4-H camp, so it's perfect to be back. 
um, this year since we missed out on last year. Yeah. Everything went well. Everyone had a blast. It was wonderful. I, I'm sure that everyone was happy to get back to uh, something closer to normal with respect to camp. I know there were still uh, some protocols in place and so on. It wasn't exactly uh, like a normal camp experience, but it was much closer than, like you said, uh, last year, certainly. Right, right. No. And even with the protocols, we found some things that worked out actually really well. So um, everyone, like I mentioned, had a blast. People tried new things. So it worked out well. And that's what camp is all about. Now, uh, obviously, the focus, uh, the the focal point of 4-H activities, you get into the judging uh, process. And that is pretty extensive. Kind of take us through what is involved uh, in judging because, you know, various projects, livestock, all of that, you're going through that judging process now, correct? Correct. So in the beginning of the year, the exhibitors will choose one, possibly more projects that they get to take from any interest area that they have. We have a wide variety of projects, whether it's the typical cooking and sewing that you think of. We have a lot of STEM projects, um, some self-determined, which means you decide what you want to do, and even some new ag careers projects. So, um, exhibitors will choose their project, and then this time of year, they will show off what they've learned. So, last week, we had judging day one, um, which had a lot of the small animals, some of the health projects, um, and a lot of the STEM projects. And so, they had to provide a display. So, a lot of people will do a poster, um, and then they will share with a judge in about seven-minute time periods um, what they've learned, maybe what they would have done a little bit differently, and then showcase off um, like, for example, this week we have the creative arts project. So some people might show, be showing off their cake that they decorated, their plate set up with their knowledge about the um, my plate and nutrition. So mm-hmm. it's an awesome way to get to talk to somebody that you might not know, get some interview practice um, while also showing off what you've learned over the last couple months. You bring up a good point that obviously the uh, focal point of project judging is to show off your project. And and I'm sure that most people go into that thinking that that's really what it's all about. But there are also lessons that are learned through the judging process itself in terms of interviewing skills and all of that. Right, right. And that was one thing that even growing up being in the program, something that really helped me as I went to college and beyond is having those one-on-one communications with people that I have maybe never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so it was definitely a different turn than what we might have been used to. Um, and a definitely a great learning experience for those youth. And a little nerve-wracking, I would imagine, too, because as you were mentioning, you're taking a project that you have spent weeks, perhaps months on, and whittling that down to uh, you know a seven- or eight-minute presentation uh, where you've got to right. put your best foot forward. So that is rather nerve-wracking, but again, obviously a very important skill to master uh, for, the, for the future. Yes, and so those um, exhibitors will then be given a grade and then they can place if they attend their 
regular judging day to potentially get to go showcase their project at the state level. And that's so. and that's really one of the reasons why, again, I, I think a lot of times uh, people think, well, these judgings they happen uh, during the fair uh, when we go out and we see the we see the animals, we see the projects, and and so on. Uh, but the judging uh, people don't realize in many cases takes uh, takes place uh, long before that, so that you know who gets to go to the next level. Right, right. Yes, there's been a few people that are like, wow, it's so early. Why is that? Well, mm-hmm. State Fair is the last two weeks of, or last week of July, first week of August. So we need to make sure that we can compensate to be sure that we have our selections to represent Hancock County down at the state level. So how long overall does the judging process take? So we have, with the number of projects that we have this year, um, we actually have judging days scheduled from... 9 to 3.30. Um, they have, we tend to aim about 10 minutes per exhibitor mm-hmm. um, just to give the judge a little bit of time to take their notes, make right. their notes. Um, right. And so most times you're in and out of there of 10 minutes, um, but we have two days that are 9 to 3.30 um, and wow. we have about seven to eight judges going at a time. Hmm. Uh, so all of this happens within a couple of days. And and so what then happens between the time when the judging is completed until, you know, fair time, which again is when you kind of uh, folks, the, the kids will present those projects sort of to the public. And uh, well, we know, you know, the displays they create for the fair and, and so on. What, what happens in the uh, intervening time? So in between, um, our state fair exhibitors will do their judging at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, in the month of August, we'll have our livestock interviews. Okay. Um, and then at the end of August, right before the fair, um, the clubs have the opportunity to set up a fair booth. And so um, some members might tweak their poster a little bit for display. Others yeah. won't. Um, but then they get those ready to put into um, the fair booth to be on display during the week of the fair. So that is the next big uh, part of the process after the judging is getting ready for the public presentation of that in the fair. And again, just like with camp, how exciting is it for the kids uh, to know that there will be a fair this year where they can show off what they have been doing all year? Yes, I've heard lots of excitement to be able to get back to that experience and also be able to show off the projects in person to the public. And I know that there's a lot of people that are looking forward to checking out the new projects in the new youth building. Absolutely. The youth pavilion. So that way everything's all in one nice area <laughs> and um, nicely displayed. Even more excitement for this year's fair, not just to be back at it after uh, last year and uh, things having to be canceled, but also you get new digs. So, you know, how exciting yeah. is that? Yes, it's very exciting, and we'll be having more details going out to clubs soon about the booths and the new building, Um, but for now, we are definitely keeping the excitement up to be able to get back to the fair this year. (laughs) Very good. Again, uh, Hancock County OSU Extension Educator Tori Kirian with us this morning, an update on what's happening with the 4-H programs uh, within the county right now. Best of luck to all of the uh, 4-H exhibitors on their judging, and uh, Tori, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, of course, that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the show... Food insecurity was already a critical problem in America, but the pandemic brought it to the fore. Now, the challenge is in continuing the vital work to address this issue moving forward. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.